You're listening to Who's That? A podcast where we look at how we manage our data online, keeping it private and secure, and what it means to be anonymous, or whether or not it's possible in the first place. This podcast is brought to you by Anon, a creative, anonymous, and conscious social network, and Storm, a podcast studio. We human beings can't help but think about posterity. We're like little Boy Scouts. We try to leave the world a little better than we found it. We plant trees and dedicate books. We assemble archives. But what do all those remnants and remembrances say about the people who left them? What can we find out from that metadata? Today's guest is Brett Gaylor. He's a Canadian documentary filmmaker, interactive storyteller, and probably best known to the world as the mind behind Do Not Track and OK Google, both documents and explorations of what it means as humans to share all the data that we do. Thanks for having me. For the benefit of uh, the audience at home, in case I didn't give you the introduction that you think you deserve, um, what else do you think we should know? I'm a documentary maker, documentarian, that works across a variety of different mediums, usually um, concerned with issues around privacy in the in the digital society. Uh, I'm a PhD candidate at Simon Fraser University in Vancouver. Uh, I got two kids, I got a dog, uh, and I'm a Pisces. Um, I'd love to start off. Uh, that's the best introduction everyone's ever, anyone's ever given <laughs> themselves on this show. The first thing I really want to ask, to the point of who you are and who you put yourself out into the world to be, your company's called Imposter Media. Why? Yeah. I, I, have you seen or read that article? Uh, I can't remember who wrote it, but uh, Pandemic as Portal, or, or, or this concept of the, the pandemic as sort of a portal that we all kind of collectively pass through and each one of us kind of changed in some particular way. No, but I'm going to look it up right now. Give us the give us the executive summary. I can't, but I, I mean, what I remember from it is is essentially this idea that we've all gone through this collective experience and trauma, which has changed us in particular ways. In some ways, mm-hmm. it's you know changed society. For in sure. some ways, it's changed us individually. For for many folks, it was you know uh, a struggle. For others, it provided these opportunities to rethink things. Um, and so Imposter Media is a, a, a company that I incorporated in 2020. So really in, in the moment of the pandemic, I had a film that had just come out, The Internet of Everything, which was about uh, basically this idea around the Internet of Things and ubiquitous computing and trying to sort of think about how the problematics and dilemmas of the Internet were starting to move you know, beyond just our computers and into other sort of facets of of everyday life. And I had recently left um, a position at the Mozilla Foundation after many years and had decided that I really wanted to go independent. And I've always, you know, been somebody that's operated as an imposter, you know, like um, I use the term imposter positively in that often I was the film person in a tech space or the tech person in a film space. And so bringing these different perspectives to um, either an issue or a way of working, but also, you know, as an artist, like, I don't know if you ever go through this, Andrew, um, but feeling this sense of imposter syndrome. So like, oh, 
God, one of these days they're going to find out that I'm a total sham and I'm making this up as I go along and it's all going to come crashing down. And every artist kind of, most artists that I speak to are very familiar with this notion. And particularly because when you're an artist, you kind of basically have to always, you always have to be, or you feel this pressure to always be making something that's good. Like making shit work is kind of non-optional, yeah. right? Um and right. I thought that I would just sort of embrace it. And I, I was also, for the first time, going back to academia. And that sort of like really, my imposter syndrome flared up there quite a bit because, you know, there was all this literature that I had been, you know, had been developed in the many years since I'd been in the academy uh, that I was catching up on. But I also found that I was able to sort of bring this perspective to that work that, you know, some of my you know, other colleagues and students um, didn't have. Uh, so it was all about, yeah, embracing it. The the academic perspective you're talking about, and, and, and really the only responsible academic or artistic or political perspective that anybody can talk about right now is one of, like, infinite subjectivity. So in that, right, like, we're all shitting our pants, excuse my French, about privacy, right? I mean, including... Truly, the th you know the three of your works that anyone's ever seen, uh, not uh, that like have broken into the popular consciousness thanks to media exposure, discriminator, do not track, and okay Google. Like they're about privacy. They're about the anxiety of being tracked. But you can't be anxious about being tracked without acknowledging who you are. You can't make any of these statements about what is good, what is bad, without the caveat of, like, I'm Brett Gaylor and I'm a dad, right? You're making this documentary about your thoughts on technology, but really, if I, you know, if, if I had to summarize it to somebody, it's a documentary about the world that the technology is creating for your son. Yeah, for sure. That I mean, OK Google is a work that sort of intentionally... Oh, did you hear that? Ah! She's here. <laughs> yeah. I don't, um, yeah. I don't even know where that thing is in this room. That's hilarious. OK Google is a work that is intentionally, like, morally ambiguous. I don't know, but I found these results on search. Okay, you need to shut up. Um, <laughs> yeah, it is inten intentionally morally ambiguous as to... Oftentimes people are looking for a moral of the story and, and oftentimes I'm keen to provide it. You know, like I think sometimes with this work, you, you kind of need to straddle that balance between being, you know, didactic and sort of like um, maybe letting the audience come to their own conclusion. But but oftentimes, you know, like Do Not Track is, is very much meant as a sort of, not polemical, but it is meant to develop a certain set of literacies and sort of critical dis discussion. So with OK Google, it really was, what is this world that he is living in, my son Rowan? And, you know, what what would it, what does it mean to have a, a year of your life when you're five recorded in that way? And that, you, you, like, unbeknownst to me, he was sort of like using Google as, as this kind of like peer to ask questions. Um, so yeah, it was it was definitely impossible to make that work without coming at it from the perspective of a father, and it would have been a, a completely different um, you know experience if it was just like, hey, did you know there's this thing? Did did you know that every time you made a um, a Google an inquiry with a 
with the Google uh, Assistant, it was saved somewhere and you can access that. And is that odd to you or creepy? I definitely... Very leading questions. Yeah, very leading questions. I'm used to them and I, I, I pose them often, but I think for this one, it just felt better to like just present it. The questions that he'd asked, he'd asked... Yeah, kind of leave the audience in a in a state of wonder at the end. It, it, it's interesting. Some people like the the response to that piece is in, in the comments. Oftentimes, people are like, "This feels like a promotional video for Google because you're not sort of like going out and saying." Um, and that's why this is creepy. It, it provokes that in the audience if you don't sort of tell them, and that's what you should think about this. Oftentimes, you can get that reaction that like, "Oh, you're like." A shill, um, and then and then on the other hand, um, most of my work comes up against this comment that like, oh, it's it's biased. Which to our point around subjectivity, it's like, yeah, it's biased because I'm a human being with like that that's come to this work with all kinds of experiences that that have led me to like want to make it, and you know, I, I have a, a specific uh, position, you know, as as the maker of it. To le- to step away from polemic, right? To step away from being it to, from from being you know another Christopher Hitchens or another like Malcolm Gladwell of of like digital polemic, that's actually in the same spirit of stepping away from being categorical, stepping away from you know universal truth, and also stepping away from being purely identifiable by what you say. Right, you're just presenting the facts. Right, you are you are embracing documentary not as, you know, documentary as documentary, not documentary as op-ed. In, in that piece, for sure. I think, though, that, you, you know, I'm okay with work that does have a specific political agenda. And, um, you know, actually, this this book here, Out on the Wire, it's um, this really interesting podcasting book, which you all might want to take a look. Oh, um, no shit. So it's... This woman, Jessica Abel, and it's a graphic novel, but it, it has a lot of... It, it, she interviews Ira Glass a lot. And he basically says that podcasting is essentially a didactic medium. And take away the judgment around that for a minute. The, the entire format of a good creative audio nonfiction work that they do, which is storytelling based. It's basically feed them an anecdote, tell them what it means, feed them an anecdote, tell them what it means, feed them an anecdote, tell them what it means. And Ira's point is that essentially you need that at the end of a podcast because you, you don't have the visual, the visual in the same way that is, that a film has or a novel has, right. That you have this, you know, if you don't say like connect the dots for people and tell them that this is what it means from your perspective, it won't, you won't get that sort of driveway moment, that kind of like epiphany about, you know, the, the interconnection of all these disparate ideas. That's what podcasting can do that really well. And so you kind of have to, you kind of have to provide that for the audience. And so I feel the same way about documentary work most of the time that like, what I can do because I have this access to the same facts as everybody else, but I'm, I'm creating a work of perspective, you know, that is like, Hey, here's a take that you might not have thought about. Um, and they they are generally for, you know, audiences that aren't every day thinking about these issues because let's face it, there's a lot going on in the world. And so 
problematics of the digital society might not make it up the, to the top of people's uh, everyday worry list. And I don't want to make them worried. I want to make them curious. Great cue to come to an anecdote. Uh, I'd love to ask, um, what came first? Your love, for, your love for tech and for data or your love for documentary? So I'm a Gen X person. Um, and so for me, the, the internet... You know, literally, I think 1977 was the year that ARPANET connected uh, to one of the other sort of radio networks that were these, they didn't have the internet yet. There was all these sort of networks that eventually came together to become the internet. And 1977, the year that I was born, was when some of those connected. But, you know, you had to be a grown-up academic to be able to sort of do anything on those networks. And so... As I was growing up, that capacity uh, evolved. And by the time I was probably like 12, I was playing with like bulletin board systems and was really, um, y- you know, interested in uh, what we would later call hypermedia. So it was like on the Macintosh, you had the hypercard, which is kind of like a, an early accessible programming language. And I sort of saw in in those medium the ability to tell stories in different ways, which included sort of like, hey, if you were interested in a subject, you could link out to that subject, or you could include uh, other media in um, your storytelling. So you you could combine samples of sound and pictures and draw your own and then give the the user some agency in that. Um, So that kind of was, was actually before filmmaking, but then filmmaking itself... um, you know, more like as a teenager, I was a skateboarder and skate videos are a very big part of the culture because you wanted to be able to kind of like see how they did it. You you know, like you could record yourself. So I saved up enough money to buy my own video camera and then started kind of making like experimental films and kind of cut up films and was also really inspired by, you know, emerging kind of uh, electronic music, which was also like people were making you know, uh, electronic music that also had visuals at the same time, like like a lot of artists in the UK, like Cold Cut and Ninja Tune. As soon as I graduated, well, one little other anecdote was that this for my final year of high school, they built a new high school building in the town that I grew up in, Salt Spring Island, British Columbia. And they had this ability to network together the computers, and I guess somehow they had gotten free copies of Autodesk 3D Studio, but none of the teachers knew how to use it at all. And so it was really this, like the kids were were finding out how to make stuff with with 3D Studio, and, and 3D Studio allowed you to um, render your work on another computer. So it was kind of like you had a reason to network the, the computers together. So if you had a complicated scene, you could like render it in parts across five computers. My neighbor was starting a film camp for teenagers on Galliano Island, British Columbia, and he was like, oh, you're good with computers. Why don't you take care of the the computer part of, of the camp? And in that year, um, ni- this was like mid to late 1990s, um, was the first sort of digital nonlinear editing was also being made possible. And that was really, really transformative. I think, you know, we take it for granted so much, but it was a big deal because it allowed you to do things really fast. So you could, the possibility was there that you could write, shoot, act, and edit 
um, a short film all within one week. And that's what we did with the kids. And then I introduced the idea of doing uh, 3D animation with the kids. Um, and in that milieu of, um, of this school for teenagers, I met some of the first documentary filmmakers, a guy named Velka Ripper, who had made a film called Bones of the Forest with Heather Fries. And it was a film about um, clear-cut logging in the Pacific Northwest. And I was like, well, that's a totally different way of being in the world and making work. You know, it was, they were sort of like, um, embedded with these people. It was a film that took like multiple years to make. Uh, it was not like any documentary that I'd ever seen because it included this positionality and their perspective. Uh, but it was also very beautiful and the sound design they kind of did themselves. And it was just like, oh, this is like this punk rock way of making films. And so I was kind of hooked at that and then uh, went to Concordia University in Montreal and uh, worked with a lot of other filmmakers in a similar way in a kind of a co-op called I Steal Film. Remind me again of the name of your, uh, of the animator you work with. Is it Darren? Yeah, Pesemko? Darren Pasemko, the sweet dude. Pasemko, no. Pasemko. Yeah. yeah. Um, what you're taught, the story you're telling about your kind of coming of, coming of age and coming of aesthetic. It's really incredible to see how this slapdash, like, cut together punk rock aesthetic you're talking about has found its form in your collaboration with Darren. And I wonder, and this is a more artistic question, but how does, how do you think that kind of your aesthetic background and your collaboration with Darren, um, and of course, correct me if I'm wrong on timelines, right? Like when y'all started working together and everything, um, but how do you think that that informs your approach to these to the subjects that you uh, make films about? It's such a privilege and one that I don't reflect on enough. So thank you to have somebody who you just like totally trust, you know, uh, that you can sort of bounce an idea off and they will return something that has sort of a, a, a visual quality and kind of a soul and a heartbeat that's like exactly what you're after because they also know you and and you know have a, a a history of making things together it's it's just such a total gift so for me it's like usually i i kind of come to work with like a, a question or kind of like a challenge like how do we make this interview with this guy like not boring he he also did uh he also did an amazing sequence in the internet of everything with a guy named Jeremy Rifkin who we ended up having to shoot in a conference room which is like the death of usually the death of a documentary moment is like oh yeah you've got 45 minutes and we'll use the conference room like those those collections of words together if anyone ever says that to you in a documentary like run away or call Darren because those are the only two ways you're going to save it uh, <laughs> um, and uh, yeah it's it's. I mean I forget the, the exact question but like how has it um, evolved how I work it's just like it's 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 trust and it's also like discriminator is an example of like you're kind of like make you're you don't exactly know where you're going with this you know you 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 start with like hey I just discovered that my honey 
my honeymoon photos trained uh, a facial recognition system. And I don't really know where this is going to go, but can we work on like two minutes of animation together? And then he'll send me work and then I'll develop the voiceover and then I'll be able to say like, oh, actually this thing that I'm, this this piece is actually about consent. And I thought it was about deep fakes. Um, And so you can only kind of get there with a, with a collaborator. That's exactly what I wanted to lead to. I mean, the, the, because your, I thought even less about, I, when I started watching Discriminator, I wasn't even thinking deep fakes. I was watching what, like, it looked a lot like, um, uh, there's a video artist in Russia, Vadim Epstein, who does these amazing, um, these style transfer pieces or, um, another group of artists, AES plus F, they just do these absolutely ghastly, um, you know, style transfer, like one face turning into the other, um, that are obvious, you know, they're no more than tech demos at this point, but still that, you know, I saw a lot of that and right. Just the, the sort of the, the montage sensibility that you both brought to that, that made enough of a point for me that I didn't even need, like, I, I, I barely needed more than the like brief note about your honeymoon and flick. Right. Right. Everything else, right? Like the the form the form there for me just built the content. Yeah, it's a blessing to be able to come at it the other way. You know, like we weren't at this thing where we're like, oh, we know how to do like a GAN. What are we going to say with it? You know, it's like uh, we kind of had a thing we we wanted to explore, and then sort of it naturally led to like, oh, well, this emerging, and and we were making this in like. 20 it was like 2019 to 2020 so like it would be so interesting to make this work now with like with dally and you know all all the uh, other sort of text to image generators and prompt hacking that have that have happened since then but yeah it was really not a, a tech demo because darren didn't know how to do that stuff he, you know he had to learn it with uh, with Kent Hugo, who's another collaborator that I've been working with a long time and that often works with with Darren. Um, so we kind of had to like, you know, explore what it was good for, what it was not good for, where we kind of needed to, um, around the edges, do more of a, you know, it was like a more AI in the loop than like, let's just give it a prompt and see what'll happen. Well, and also, I mean, as someone who, right, like, I owe more to YouTube as a as a creator than I do to any of my professors, I think that it's really interesting to look at how that style of learning and the fact that to make that documentary at that time meant that you had to dive into that research yourself. How did it then feel, uh, you know, to get onto the subject of privacy and and I mean and and the ethics of data use and your kind of polemic on that, your your position on that? Sorry, how did your experience working with that right materially in that moment? like building these style transfer bits, building these recognition bits, how did that then inform, how did that shape the conclusion that you ended up reaching or the the the, the findings that you presented about the Chinese military, about the Russian COVID cops, about the World Cup? With Discriminator, there was a underlying thing that I wanted to do, which was also to move beyond this um, framing of privacy violations as, you know, quote unquote, creepy. Because um, like with Do Not Track, that was like, I think like the Vice review is like, this is creepy. <laughs> you, know, you know, and people always say that, that you're like, hey, you, you know, let me show you something 
Um, let me show you this search engine tool that I can show you to see if any of your photos are in facial recognition. And then when they do, they say, this is creepy. And that, or, or, or you know, um, the social dilemma. It's like, it, it feels like that movie, well, there's a lot of good stuff going on in that movie. It's like, that's the, that's what they're trying to do with that movie is like, on Netflix, it's like, this is a creepy movie. It's even more creepy than a horror movie. And th that's a problematic framing for somebody as a, that's actually an advocate in this area because you can't do anything with that emotion except like run away, push it away, or feel guilty that you're sort of using it. Um, I wanted to move to sort of like a more of a nuanced discussion and be able to kind of capture that within the documentary. And so to make it, I was having to kind of like so the person that did a lot of the visual research was actually my wife, Shelly, who um, is in those photos and took those photos. And she had to sort of be with the material. She had to be like, oh, these are actually the photos that are in that are in this library. Oh, it's like, oh, man, that's like our kid that or or like, uh, oh, you know, like we we a lot of the photos were from the year like 2008 and we lived in Montreal and we were goofy and we were partying all the time. So like a lot of that stuff's in there, too. So we also had a lot of kind of you know, fun moments of looking through the archive. And it, and then we had to share that material with, with, with Darren. And so all of, oftentimes I had to communicate with friends and say like, Hey, by the way, like, yeah, sorry about this. But like your photos in this facial recognition database or your kids are. Um, and so all of that caused this reflection around context. So when I was putting those photos onto Flickr, the context that I was putting them in there mostly had to do with friendship and sort of preservation, right? Like I was, um, you know, wanting to show a family member what it was like to be on our honeymoon or to, to sort of like, hey, haha, I want to share this moment at the hockey game with, you know, other friends that were there, you know? And so this relates to, I, I have to sort of, do a citation here to the work of a scholar named Helen Nissenbaum. And she talks about this concept of, of privacy as contextual integrity. And so in that context, um, these were the people that I, uh, that I thought were going to get the photos. And the, and these are the context that I thought that they were going to be receiving them in was, was mostly around like family and friends, just looking at photos, seeing where people were staying in touch. What then happened to the photos was that, there was two norms that were violated. And Nissenbaum talks about these as um, norms around the transmission principles, like what what medium did it flow through? Um, and then another one that I, I can't remember what she calls it exactly, but it's around the, the actors, the audience, like who, so who's going to see it? And so, you know, to your question of like, what was, what was the materiality of, of working with this stuff was that like when I was making it, it, it was with all the people that I loved and cared about. And we were sort of like having this conversation and it made me realize more that what I, what disturbed me wasn't that it, it wasn't necessarily that my photos were helpful to the developers of facial recognition. It, that it, it was that there was a huge shift in context, right? So it's not necessarily like, Ooh, I really don't like Estee Lauder or I really don't like Clearview or AI or the Russian police or the Moscow police, right? It's that there was this huge 
engineered shift in context, not just for my face, but for everybody in that database. So now the transmission principle is that this is being used as a verification tool to see if your facial recognition system is any good. And it's also being, it's all these computer scientists, like who will never meet me and never had an opportunity to check that. And then yes, their, their eventual use is it, many of those uses, like the vast majority of those uses, I probably would not have consented to. Um, and this brings up a really tricky thing with this whole world of big data and artificial intelligence is that the use will almost always be in the future, right? Um, and in a context that is impossible for you to know at the moment that you're sharing it, because by definition, it will take some different form. And so that's why this sort of conversation around consent is so tricky, because like, how could you ever consent to <laughs> a future use that you will in a, in a form that you will never know? And so that's where I want sort of people to get is not to like, ooh, that's creepy, but like, oh yeah, look at the different, look at that new context, look at that new actor, look at that, look, look at precisely that thing. How would we prevent that from happening in the future? Tricky scenario. It's like, what are, what are the levers that we have there? Are they technical? Are they legal? Are they social? Um, but it's just, it's a, it's a different place and a more useful framing than that's creepy. To respond to what you're saying, also, I mean, the thing that I can't help thinking of is you're talking about this idea. Also, I mean, privacy is contextual integrity. I'm going to have tattooed on as a gigantic all cap sleeve. I, I want to ask then to the point of privacy, to the point of contextual integrity, to the point of context and how you can ever think of it or how it can even be how you can even think of it in terms of preservation, preservation at this point in our lives. It seems to me that in the world we live in and will continue living in, there is no such thing as a private citizen anymore. At no, like, I, obviously, right? There's, there has been the, the, the notion or of an anonymous for posterity. Anyway. I would also love to hear your thoughts on, like, the, ter like, the terms anonymity and privacy. Um, but I feel like, you know, just to respond immediately, what we have to think about as we put all these things online, we are essentially engaging in publishing, which humans have engaged in for hundreds of years. But, at, you know, the decision to publish has always been a decision to think, like, in defiance of context or, like, in, in you know, how do you, how do you make something that, in theory, would stand on its own? I don't think most people, when they interact with their friends or others on social media think about it as something that needs to last for five years or 200 years, right? And I think that, like, you know, um, Dana Boyd has done a lot of interesting sort of um, ethnographic work with teenagers where, you know, they share things, these these teens, that then become, you know, problematic later on, right? And we've all, you know, we can all think about, like, oh, you filmed yourself getting drunk and then it's like, oh, later on you wish that... You, you hadn't. And and oftentimes people look at that and say like, oh, those silly teens, you know, they, they, they're inhibited or they're uninhibited in the wrong way. And they don't, they don't believe in privacy anymore. And it's not that it's that they actually have a more sophisticated understanding of their audience is what Boyd finds that like, when they share those that material, 
they imagine that the audience for it is their friends and that it's like an ephemeral moment that it's just like if they had written a note or they they had talked to a friend um, and then it escapes beyond the context that they intended it for and, and their parents see it or, you know, an employer sees it or a, a school teacher te- sees it. And so, again, that's back to like that, that, that sort of inspires me as somebody that also aims to kind of um, increase literacies in this area that I want that like teen not to like think twice, but, you know, but to have to be to be supported you know, in, in that Sherry, it's like, I think it's very similar to, you know, discussions of the climate. It's like how, how much of what's the amount of appropriate responsibility to put on the individual and, and how much is we, do we sort of need to right. look for, to systemic change? Because it is very similar. It's like Facebook is like, well, look, we gave you these three, you know, um, privacy controls for your photos, you know, our, our responsibility ends there. And it's great that they have, that they've made those, changes to the way photos spread and that wouldn't have happened without a lot of you know pressure from civil society but the, like their 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 responsibility is much greater than just giving tools to the individual and and, and in fact you know that that is a sort of a dangerous trope about um about privacy is that oftentimes the the researchers or industry sort of look to um, give increased control to individuals when, in fact, um, individuals often, when they're asked, understand they're 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 not like looking for more control. They're resigned. They're like, "Beh, what what is it? I don't know that like anything matters. Like um, this information is just going to be out there, and you know, if somebody really wants it, they can take it. And, and like that's, I think that's the thing to push back on is that resignation." rather than like um, sort of chide somebody for, you know, sharing in a context that yeah. they shouldn't have. One thing we love doing on here is um, we kind of love to bring our episodes to a sort of, not so much a call to action, but like a really direct reflection on where we're at right now. And I think in talking about Do Not Track, the way that you conclude the cl- conclude the series really lends itself to that. Because, I mean, you made it in 2015. You know, you pulled your audience's... right, said they are more aware of privacy issues. 21% say that they changed their online habits. And only 4% say they don't care about privacy. The, you know, the film nerd in me wants to do like a, 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 oh, who was the guy who did like a 7-Up, 21-Up, right? Like, I want to follow the people. I want to follow those same people every seven years into the future as they figure out what they think about privacy. If you were making that film right now, or if you were to take that that sort of, uh, you know, longitudinal documentary lens of, you know, okay, let's remake this, let's let's iterate on this. What do you think you might have done differently? Or what do you think you might do, sorry, differently? And what effect would you, like, what kind of effect would you want it to have? I think for context, it's good. It's important to know that, like, Do Not Track is probably the most collaborative thing I've ever done. Like so many people worked on that show. I think at one point when it was just like humming, um, we realized that there was a hundred people working on it at, at, at that moment from, you know, the, the people that were sort of engaging with the audience from the National Film Board of Arte, which were super important to make sure that, that was happening correctly. Um, 
to the different researchers, uh, developers, other, you know, filmmakers who, you know, directed particular episodes. So, so the, the end result, and it was also created in a very, um, compressed period of time. I think it was from like October, 2014. And then we had to be done by like March, 2015. And we made seven episodes and it was huge. Like it's kind of, I think if we had known that where we wanted to end the episode was really in a prediction about the future, we may have, we, we may have engaged with the audience differently um, so that was an improvised sort of thing, you know, halfway through we're like, oh shit, we got to start thinking about episode seven. What do we want to, what do we want to say and how are we going to make it? And I think that uh, we may have um, not tried to scare them. So we kind of underestimated the impact that presenting this information in the, in the way that we did, we thought it would be kind of funny and novel, but it actually really kind of like, spooked people. And so if we had known that we were going to land um, with a sort of invitation to speculate on the future, I think we may have like early on also created, we would have shown them different futures that were possible, you know, because the thing about speculative thinking, uh, which I know now because I'm working on a speculative piece, is that you don't want, there's two things that you don't want to do. You don't want to predict one future, you want to show that the future is this space of possibility and and that you want to be able to create a feedback loop so people understand that it's like the actions that you're taking right now are going to impact that future. And so, yeah, I think we might have like put people in more of a generative space to think about um, possible futures for the internet and their data that weren't about like scarcity or sort of trying to limit your data, but about sort of like, what are the, what are, what's an amazing possibility that's, that could happen here if we share more data? What's a future where everybody knows everything about everyone? Ah, that sounds awful, but like, let's, let's sit with it for a moment and like, okay, Charlie Brooker. Yeah, exactly. Maybe that's, maybe we know what that would look like and it's, it's, it's awful. But yeah, I, I think to answer your question, what would we do differently? I think we would try to maybe show a lot more what sort of positive visions for the future would look like. And I think that's w- one of those futures. Um, I think they call it like big citizen or something like that. Is that That's what we called it. Um, it Ooh, I haven't heard yeah, of that, so but I love it. There's three possible futures that you get in, in Do Not Track depending on the, your behavior throughout the series. Oh, that's right. right. So, yeah, yeah, right, uh, and it's, right, right. And uh, kudos to you. Not many people got all the way to the end. Um, and I had to like redo the series a while ago just to sort of remember because it was all a bit of a blur. But I think there was Big Brother, Big Citizen, um, like Big Money, or, and, and like Big Tech or something like that. And, and so it's like most of those futures that we predicted were, were negative. And the one that was sort of citizen-led um, was mostly about regulation. It was like there was strong regulation. I think this was just before the GDPR came out in Europe as well, but it was sort of like uh, on, yeah. on the um, on the on the cusp of of happening. And so I, I think it would have been really interesting to to sort of like posit you know futures for the internet that had led to you know like a reduction of disease or like there was less war or like you know and it was like do not track was like one year before Cambridge Analytica and Trump, you know what I mean? Um, and, and 
it, it ended up being worse than what we thought was going to happen. Like we, we had an episode that was about sort of polarization and we were like, you know, just pointing out there's like, things are a little bit polarized. What? And it was like, fuck, like we, we were like, we underestimated that. And so I would have just loved for us to go to a, a, a place where we, we weren't about like predicting how bad things could get, but really like trying to show a, a possible better future. I repeated myself like 17 times in there. So, so somewhere in there, you'll get it. Signature last question. I want to come back to it. Brett Gaylor, what does anonymity mean to you? So yeah, I, I don't know actually what like the Webster's definition of that is, but for me, it's that no, you're n- nobody knows who you are in a, in, a, in a given space. I think is is something that we want to preserve. There are spaces for which anonymity is really important, um, and spaces where it's inappropriate, and we can see that like bad things happen. Um, in those moments, like exactly. <laughs> so I did a I did a project. Well, I, I when I was at Mozilla, I supported a project called "Do Not Draw a Penis," and uh, it was created by this. That's hard. We got Rule Thirty Four to work with. Yeah, so it was created by this Dutch group, this group of Dutch artists named Moniker, and it's awesome. And and basically, it's this explore. So they they were using Google's Quick Draw. Which is like you know you can make you can start drawing something and then the AI will recognize it and auto complete it for you, but Google did not include penises in this quick draw thing. Even though penises are the thing that's it's quite easy to draw, and uh, if you if if you grant people anonymity, uh, I know this that uh, they will eventually start drawing penises. We used to have this. I don't know if you, you beep this out if you want to, but we used to have this <laughs> this. Um, idea and Mozilla when we were launching creative projects was like what is the uh TTD which meant time to dick like how how long <laughs> will, uh, will it be, be Occam's <laughs> razor Hanlon's razor there's one it's like all all arguments will eventually get to Hitler and, and and if you create a space on the internet that includes an anonymity and the ability to to draw or create something penises will show up and so, how, and then, how do you regulate a space like that? If if you like take away the ability to draw a penis, what else are you taking away the ability to do? It does what I was just describing that we need to do with these kinds of works, which is, you know, include the dilemma and include the um, the phenomenon that you want to talk about within the work itself. And I think that in creating works about the digital society, like the most effective ones figure out a way to do that. Well, uh, I can say then, uh, based on our current recording time, that uh, TD was uh, about one <laughs> hour and 19 minutes. That's a pretty that's a pretty respectable TTD, I would say. You know, like it's an <laughs> elevated conversation, Andrew. This was Andrew Freeberg with our podcast, Who's That? In our next episodes, we'll continue exploring the topics of anonymity, data privacy, and much more. Subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like our work, let us know. Leave a review and make sure you share it with your friends. Who's That is produced by Anon, the social network that shows creators, consumers, and everyone else online the bright side of anonymity, and Storm, a podcast production studio. We'll be back in two weeks. Thanks for listening. Save our podcast, leave your comments, and let the world know what you think. As for next time, don't call us. We'll call you. <laughs>